Thank you, ladies. Great job. Take your Bibles. Turn with me to Luke chapter 23 this morning. Luke chapter 23. So glad to see each of you this morning. I'm glad that you have decided to spend Easter Sunday morning with us. Luke chapter 23 is where we'll be looking in just a few moments. I want to bring you this morning a message on the last words from the cross. A frequent question when someone dies is, did he say anything at the end? Somehow, the words of even the most ordinary people have a way of seeming important if they're their last words. Of course, not everyone has the opportunity to say any final words, and even some who do don't have anything significant or memorable to say. You may have probably heard of the Mexican bandito Francisco Pancho Villa. He had the distinction of being the only soldier to lead a successful invasion of America. In 1923, he was shot by an assassin, and his last words were, Don't let it end like this. Tell them I said something. Probably some of us might feel that way. As we live in the South, you may have heard of some of the famous last words of a good old boy. The most famous, of course, is, hey, y'all, watch this. (laughs) A close second is, I'll hold it, you light the fuse. My personal favorite is, hey, he's kind of cute, I wonder where the mother bear is. I did want to lighten the mood just a a little bit before we turn our attention to the very serious matter of examining the last statements of Jesus as he was dying on the cross of Calvary. But in the truest sense of the word, we cannot call these the final words of Jesus. Because unlike any other person, Jesus rose from the dead, and he spoke many more words, and he's still speaking today. And that's why we've entitled the message, Last Words from the Cross. Six hours passed between the pounding of the first nails into the body of Jesus and the last breath of Jesus on Calvary's cross. But during those awful hours, with great expensive effort, Jesus spoke seven times. And those seven statements can be classified in four different categories. First of all, there were words of grace. Luke chapter 23, verse 33 says, And when they came to a place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. It's Friday morning, 9 a.m., killing time. Outside, the Damascus Gate is a road. Up above is a rocky outcropping that, if studied at a certain angle, looks like a skull. Skull Hill, they call it. Golgotha. It was a place where the Romans did their killing. And Friday was the day, and nine o'clock was the time. The soldiers were ready to carry out their dirty work. They were Roman soldiers, 
They from another part of the world. They weren't Palestinians. They weren't from Israel. They were simply soldiers who had a job to do. And it happened to be that they were on the death squad. They were in charge of crucifixions. On this particular Friday morning, they didn't know the names of the people. They never did. It didn't matter. They were just the executioners. From their point of view, it didn't pay to stop and think about what they did. Guilt or innocence wasn't their business. Up the road came a procession of people led by a brawny foreigner carrying a cross. That couldn't possibly be the one they're going to crucify. And as it turns out, he was a man by the name of Simon, Simon of Serene. The crowd swirled around him, and behind him is a stooped figure, now walking, now crawling, each step an agony to behold. He had been beaten to with an inch of his life. His back hung in shreds. His face was disfigured and swollen, where they had ripped out the beard by the roots. And on his head a crown of thorns, a shell of a man, a man already more dead than alive. They laid him on the cross on the ground, one hand over here and one hand over here, and they drove the spikes through the forearm side of his wrist so that when the weight of the cross fell, the spikes would not rip all the way through the hand. A spike in both wrists, and then a spike through his feet. With the ropes in place, they began to pull the cross up, and they dropped it, and it fell with a thud. There was Jesus, naked and exposed before the world, beaten, bruised, and bloody. The soldiers stood back, satisfied, a job well done. What they did that day was unforgivable. That's the definition of what unforgivable is. When you crucify the Son of God, you have done that which is beyond forgiveness. It is truly unforgivable. And now as Jesus looks out over the crowd at the foot of the cross, he makes his first statement. Jesus defined grace in that he prayed for those who crucified him. Luke chapter 23 and verse 34. We read that Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. In the original language, the verb that Jesus said is perfect tense. That means continuous action. That means, in other words, that Jesus repeated that prayer numerous times as they carried out their task, as they drove a nail through his right wrist. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. As they drove the nail through the other wrist, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. As they drove the nail through his feet, he said, Father, forgive them, they do not know what they're doing. And as they dropped him into place on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. What grace. John chapter 1 and verse 14 says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. He was grace 
in the flesh. By praying as he did, Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, we are told that the Messiah would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And the last verse of Isaiah chapter 53 said, And he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressor. That's exactly what Jesus was doing when he prayed for God to forgive those who were crucifying him. People do things that hurt us. And so we find it difficult to believe that what Jesus said about those that hurt him, that they didn't know what they were doing. Sometimes it seems to us that the people who hurt us do it with great deliberateness. They seem to know exactly what they're doing and just don't care. But in a very real sense, even when a sin is carefully calculated, planned thoroughly, and carried out with great exactness, no one really understands the degree of the terrible damage that it can do to people. We don't know how deeply we have hurt others, and those who have hurt us don't really realize how deep the pain goes. In just such a situation, Jesus speaks and says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Could you, in that circumstance, pray that prayer? How do you forgive the unforgivable? Sometimes we think we don't have to forgive because the offender has never asked for our forgiveness. And until they ask, we feel that we do not have to forgive. But let's look at what Jesus said here. He's saying, Father, forgive them because they need forgiveness more than they can imagine. Father, forgive them because they desperately need forgiveness and they don't even know it. This morning, it could be that God is reminding you of someone you need to forgive. And secondly, Jesus displayed grace when he took care of his mother. We find this in John chapter 19, if you want to turn there. If there was ever a time for a person to think only of themselves, then surely it is the hour of their death. Yet even in the agony of the final hours on the cross, Jesus thought of others. And we begin reading in verse 25. Now there stood by the cross Jesus, his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. As Jesus looked out from the cross, his glaze fell on Mary, his mother, and he addressed her. And then he spoke to John, the only one of the twelve disciples who followed him all the way to the cross. I want you to notice that after the mention of Joseph, found in Luke chapter 2, when Jesus was 12, there is no further mention of Joseph, his earthly father. Probably by this time, Joseph, the man who acted as Jesus' earthly father, had died. As the oldest son, Jesus had the responsibility of caring for his widowed mother. And even so, as he was dying on the cross for the sins of the world, 
he still provides for his mother by requesting that his closest friend care for her. Even in the midst of the suffering of the cross, Jesus never lost sight of those who were closest to him. Sometimes, in the pain of our given situation, we find that it causes us to lose sight of anyone or anything other than ourselves. Jesus speaks to us through this situation to refuse to allow a present painful situation to dull our sensitivity to the needs of others who are dependent upon us. Secondly, there are words of promise. Found in Luke chapter 23, we find Jesus said, And you will be with me today in paradise. It says in verse 39, Then one of the criminals who hang blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Surely I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. As Jesus hung on the cross, he became the subject of debate between the two thieves with whom he was crucified. We don't know the names of these thieves. We don't know their hometowns. We don't know the crimes that they committed. Both Matthew and Mark record that both thieves in the beginning mocked Jesus. But at some point, one of the thieves allowed reflection upon his own troubles to change his viewpoint. He was moved to admit his own guilt and the justness of his sentence. He also came to the point that he realized that Jesus was indeed who he said he was. And he asked Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It is in response to this request that we find that Jesus said in verse 43 to the second thief, Assuredly, I say unto you, today you with me in paradise. That's the gospel. It's simple as that. As long as you have breath, you can invite the Savior to lead you to heaven. This poor dying thief didn't know all the right words to say. But he said what he said was good enough because he came to the right person. The great pastor teacher Alexander McLaren said, There is one deathbed repentance recorded in the Bible so that none might despair. But there is only one that none might presume. The third category of, is words of anguish. The crucifixion began promptly at 9 o'clock. The Romans were very punctual about things like that. And then it happened. Mark chapter 15 and verse 33. We see the isolation of the cross revealed as Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It says in verse 33, And now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, 
And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabatane, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who stood by when they heard that said, Look, he's calling for Elijah. And then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come and take him down. At about noon, there was darkness over the whole land, according to verse 33. It was totally unexpected. He was not an eclipse, nor was it merely a heavy cloud cover. It was darkness itself, inky black, thick darkness. It was darkness without a hint of light. It was chilling, terrifying blackness, and it lasted for three hours. It is what happened during that time of darkness that is important. From the beginning of the beginning, God the Father and God the Son have been co-equal and co-existent. But for those few hours in which the sin of the whole world was poured out on Jesus, the bond of fellowship was somehow broken. At that precise moment in time, Jesus was bearing the sins of the world. And during those three hours of darkness, Jesus felt the full weight of the sins of mankind rolled onto his shoulders. And then just as the light returned, four words pierce the air. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabbatani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This is the only time that Jesus addresses the Father as God. Every other time Jesus addresses God, he calls him Abba, Daddy. We see also the agony of the cross in the statement, I thirst. John chapter 19, verse 28. As Jesus hung on the cross, he made those st seven statements I told you about, but only one of them <clears throat> related to his own personal, physical suffering. It says in verse 28, And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled the sponge with sour wine and put it on a hyssop and put it to his mouth. Jesus has been on the cross for six long hours. And of course, prior to that, he had been beaten nearly to death. In all that time, he makes only one reference to all the suffering that he underwent. What Jesus said is just one word in Greek. It is dipsoi. It means I thirst. In one of the universe's supreme ironies, the water of life is now dying of thirst. Now notice the finally and fourth and finally, words of victory. We see that now Jesus' work is completed and we find in John 19 verse 30 that Jesus says, it is finished. It says, so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. 
and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. In the Greek language from which the New Testament is translated, this is just one word, tetelestai. Tetelestai is in perfect tense. That is significant because perfect tense means something that is done in the past that still has continuous results in the present. From the cross, Jesus declared, It is finished. It is completed. It is paid in full. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14, the Apostle Paul says, Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements which was against us, which was contrary to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Let me explain that verse to you. Under the Roman system of justice, when a man was convicted of a crime, his crime and the sentence was written on a placard, and that placard was nailed to the door of his cell. Upon the completion of his sentence, it was taken down, and across that placard was, wrote, was written just one word, tetelestai. It is finished. It is completed. It is paid in full. Because Jesus died on the cross, when you accept the payment that was made for your sins, across the record of your sin is written, paid in full. One last statement that shows us that fellowship with the Father is restored. We look at Luke chapter 23 and verse 44. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. When Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And so when the centurion saw what happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. We find that Mark tells us that Roman centurion who saw Jesus die said, Surely this man is the Son of God. In his last hours on the cross, we realize that Jesus, somehow that union with the Father had been broken. God is too holy and too pure to look upon sin. And so as the Father closed his eyes, the world became dark. Moments before Jesus died, that darkness dissipated. And once again, Jesus reconnected with his Father. He drops the impersonal form of address he used when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he slips back into the affectionate term. He says, Abba, into your hands I commit my spirit. But I don't want you to miss that you and I are included in this intimacy with God. In verse 45, Luke includes a statement that we may think is insignificant. It's a statement about the curtain in the temple being torn in two. But this is, in fact, a profound detail. That curtain was 60 feet tall, 24 feet wide, and as thick as a man's hand. It hung from the 
sealing as a petition between the holy of holies and the most holy. Only one man, the high priest, could enter the holy of holies. And then he could only enter one day per year on the day of atonement. And there he made a, a sacrifice for the sins of Israel. In, this, in essence, this curtain separated God from every other person in the world. But it's torn not from the bottom to the top, from the top to the bottom. Which was God's way of saying, I'm no longer unapproachable. Through the blood of my son's sacrifice on the cross, anyone can come into my presence and have a relationship with me. <clears throat> Let me conclude with this illustration. When Andrew Jackson was the President of the United States, there was a sensational crime committed where robbers hijacked a federal payroll. And in the process, one of the robbers, George Wilson, shot and killed a guard. <clears throat> After being arrested and tried, Wilson was sentenced to be hung. There was growing public sentiment against capital punishment, and especially because there were some questionable details about this crime. President Jackson gave a full pardon to George Wilson. Unbelievably, Wilson refused the pardon. Now, officials were confounded, and they said he had no choice. Since the president had issued a pardon, he must accept it. He still refused. And so the case went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. In 1829, Chief Justice John Marshall made this ruling. A pardon is just a piece of paper whose only value must be determined by the receiver of the pardon. It has no value apart from that which the receiver gives it. George Wilson has refused to accept the pardon. We cannot conceive why he would do so, but he has. Therefore, George Wilson must die. Wilson was executed by hanging not long afterwards. You may think he was a fool for refusing a pardon, but he's no more foolish than the thousands of people around the world who refuse the offer of pardon by Jesus Christ. Today, some with, with much more authority than the U.S. president is making an offer that is hard to refuse. He says, you're guilty, and you deserve to die. But I'm offering you a full and free pardon of your sins. The question is, will you receive it? Have you received it? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the pardon that is ours because Jesus paid 
the cross, that paid for our sins on the cross of Calvary. He took our sins there and paid them in full. And pardon is only good if it's received. And so, Lord, there may be someone here that has never received that pardon that Jesus is offering. I pray that today, right here, they might realize that they need to do that. And they can do it right here in the quietness of this time. All they need to do is turn to you and admit that they are sinners. And in their own words, ask you to come into their heart and life, forgive them of their sins, and save them. We've seen from what we read this morning, there's no special formula, there's no special words that have to be said. It just has to be from our hearts. Your word assures us that if anyone would come to you, that they might not be rejected. It doesn't matter where we've been, it doesn't matter what we've done, that we can find full and complete forgiveness. Father, I pray for that one that may need to make that decision this morning. May each of us leave this place here today in full recognition of what Jesus has done for us. That he went to the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins. But he's not still on the cross, he's not still in the grave, he arose. And because he rose from the grave, we know, we know that we too can have life eternal. Father, we pray that you'd help us in this time yet ahead. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.